And uh, thank you for your coming out to worship this morning as the body of Christ. Uh, Many troubles and tribulations uh, may prevent us from being able to worship the Lord together, but uh, thankful for your perseverance uh, to be here this morning. And uh, for those who are tuning in at home as well, we're grateful that you're participating uh, remotely and uh, pray that the Spirit of Christ who dwells within each of us will join our hearts together, whether at home or here, uh, that the body will thrive and be fed from God's Word. Very thankful for uh, my brother-in-law coming as well, surprising us uh, with his presence uh, in our service this morning. And uh, that's always an exciting thing uh, to be surprised like that. Thank you, Dave, for coming up. And uh, you're turning a little red there, but, uh, but glad that you're here. Invite me invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews 10. We're going to be looking at verses 1 through 10 as our text this morning, and the text is uh, pretty straightforward. A good chunk of it actually came from Psalm 40 that uh, Nick read this morning, so you got to see some of the broader context of Psalm 40. And we read, starting in verse 1, For since the law has but a shadow of good things to come, Instead of the true form of those realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered, since the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sins. But in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year." For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body have you prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. And when he said above, you neither desired nor take pleasure in sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings and sin offerings, these are according to the law. And then he added, behold, I have come to do your will. He does away with the first in order to establish the second. And by that will, we have been sacrificed through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Our precious Lord, as we look into this text, help us to be able to appreciate the grand desire, the the will that the Heavenly Father has for us. Help us to appreciate the great length at which you orchestrated all of the events of history to culminate in the precious sacrifice of the Son. May we experience the the presence of the Holy Spirit moving within us, drawing us into union with the Father and the Son. And Father, as we look into this text, give us eyes to see, ears to hear. In your name we pray. Amen. Gary Friesen wrote a book published in 1980. It was called Decision Making and the Will of God. I don't know if anyone here has ever read that book, 
But the book actually spawned many sermons that I heard growing up. Many of those sermons were helpful to the degree that they probably did encourage young people to really take seriously the call of God for service and following Christ vocationally, maybe even considering ministry. Um, Since Gary Friesen's book, though, was published, there's been many responses to his book. Um, And as helpful as his book has been, it may have also had some unintended consequences. Friesen's book actually was a little bit less helpful because it tended to create an oppressive preoccupation with trying to determine God's perfect will. I don't know if you've heard that term before, finding God's perfect will. And actually what that was, was what, did, what happened is it actually created a conscientious examination of non-moral choices and actually elevating them to the level of moral uh, destiny. And uh, the problem was is that, uh, you know, you might be trying to analyze life like a chess game, trying to anticipate five or six moves down the road to anticipate whether or not the decision you make today is going to still line up in God's perfect will. Actually, if you consider, we don't have that much control over the decisions that we make. In fact, when we make decisions, even the wisest of decisions, we are still dependent upon God for the outcomes that we can't control. We don't have the ability to see five moves down the road to see exactly what God is going to do. If you remember back in August when I spoke about the need to evaluate risk-taking with an attitude of trust and resting in God... I had said that whether the decision we make to wear a mask or not wear a mask, to social distance or to not social distance, does not guarantee outcomes. We can't possibly, uh, whether positive or negative, control the outcomes. That is up to God and to God alone. And so it's important that when we make decisions, ultimately, even the wisest of decisions, we have to rest in God's mercy and wisdom because he ordains what is right. Simply put, we're not sovereign over our own destiny. It's of the Lord's mercies that we are not consumed. I deeply appreciate Nick praying for the sake of our country, praying with regard to the election. Sure, we're going to be making decisions, and we ought to be trying to think about God's revealed will. We ought to be using wisdom in our choices We can make a decision about a party platform along biblical priorities, but ultimately, God is in charge. He is the one who sets up kings and takes down kings. He's the one who removes presidents or sustains presidents. In the millions of votes that are cast this fall, more minds are being persuaded and for reasons that none of us can manage. God is completely sovereign over all of the intricacies that we cannot control. And so when we look at the myriad of decisions we make in the course of the day, well, God is concerned for every sparrow that falls. We ought to be asking ourselves, what is the primary? What is the primary concern? We can't 
We can't even begin to get into the little weeds of the details that God manages. But we can ask ourselves, what is the primary concern of the Father? What is it that drives the history of the world? What is going to bring us to the conclusion of meeting him one day? And how do I participate? How do I get in the purposes of God? So in this text, what we're going to see is how the Son of God chose to prioritize the will of the Father. He chose to carry out the will of the Father. And it is ultimately for our good that he did this. And in it, we can also see a pattern for for how we ought to also make decisions to follow the will of the Father. So the idea that I'm going to try to focus on, the, the main point here in this message, is that the Father wills our consecration to him through union with the Son and by the Holy Spirit. Now in this text, we've just read it, but I need to point out a word that's important and where I get the word consecration from. It's found in verse 10. It's actually in the last verse that I read. In verse 10 it says, And by that will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. The word sanctified is a technical redemptive word that speaks to the consecration of one's life in a relationship of devotion, of being committed, consecrated. And Jesus' actions set it up so that we might be able to be consecrated, fully devoted, like the Son, by our lives in following him And uh, as we look at this text, we need to realize just how important that message is. When we examine our life and the trajectory of our life, we need to ask ourselves genuinely, do we want the will of the Father on earth as it is in heaven? Do we genuinely from the heart want what he wants? Do I want to be consecrated to him? Now, the psalm, the psalm, Psalm 40, comes up in this text, and you, as you were listening to the read here in this text, the phrase, I have come to do your will, comes up frequently. Come to do your will. Psalm 40 is the root here, but you see the attitude of consecration in that phrase. Verse 7 says, then I said, this is quoting the future Messiah, behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written in the scroll of the book. In this text, you see two words that are used, English words, but underneath it's the same idea of, of willing, of like obedience, of, of, of will. It's the word desire. Notice in verse 5, it says, At the beginning of the quote, sacrifices and offerings you have not desired. That's the same word that is used in verse 7 where it says, Behold, I have come to do your desire or your will. There's a difference here. The root word is underneath is the same. God did 
in fact, desire Israel to sacrifice animals to atone for sin. However, God did not, if you will, predestine before the foundation of the world to bring... He, he, he did predestine before the foundation of the world to bring in a greater sacrifice. Something that would surpass all of these, these animal sacrifices. So you see it worded, sacrifices and offerings you have not desired. Well, ultimately is what we're talking about. God ultimately desired that his own son would prepare the way. And so it's important for us to understand the distinction there. That the father wills not only the son's consecration to him, but the son becomes the vehicle for our consecration to him. Now, in this text, I'm going to unpack it. There are two reasons, two reasons that the blood of Jesus Christ guarantees, guarantees the Father's desired consecration. Two reasons. And the first is found in verses 1 through 4. In Christ, the burden of sin is decisively taken away. This is how it's possible that the Son can facilitate our personal consecration to him. It's in Christ that that burden of sin is completely taken away. When we get to the last half of the text, we're going to see how that, we're going to see how that in Christ, the, the pleasure of God is decisively accomplished. But let's see how first, how that the burden of sin is decisively taken away. And you have to realize that we cannot properly draw near to God if we are continually dealing with a guilty conscience. Follow along with the reasoning here in these verses. You see, the writer here is saying that the law provided a shadow of good things to come. There's a shadow there. Remember the temple. We've talked about the temple, the tabernacle, the priesthood, the blood sacrifices. These all anticipated the good that was going to come in the person of Jesus Christ. But the continual repetition of the sacrifices year after year, they, they, they continually brought before people's attention their abiding principle of sin. It creates a reminder, these verses say, a continual reminder of the sin. Every year at the Day of Atonement, there was great risk to the priest who would enter into the holy place. Would he come out? Would he come out alive? And the consciousness of sins in the old system was overwhelming. In other places in the New Testament, we're told that the law actually was designed to increase the awareness of sin. That's in the book of Romans, Romans chapter 2. So if this was the appointed means to atone for the sins of the Old Testament, and it was ineffective to cleanse the conscience, how much more any other method? This is where it becomes very applicational and points us to the reality that we need Christ in his blood to alleviate our own consciousness, our own conscience. If the appointed means in the Old Testament was, in the end, ineffective to relieve the burden of sin, how much more the attempt 
that people make today to suppress their conscience. You know, that's probably one of the most common ways that people try to cleanse their conscience. It's through suppression. It's a dis- like a defense mechanism that people have where we push unwanted memories, anxiety-provoking thoughts, fantasies, desires. We push them out of our mental awareness and we try to suppress them. But suppression is an act of the will, isn't it? We have to choose to kind of like walk away and kind of push them aside. You know, for example, we might suppress thoughts like things that would, we would want to say to our boss, right? But we won't say them because we want our job more, right? And so we suppress those thoughts, but those thoughts are still there. And what tends to happen with those thoughts when they're suppressed? They become bitterness. They're never decisively dealt with. They kind of linger and they they foment underneath of the surface. And suppression of the conscience is actually a very dangerous thing. It could be like tuning out a sermon, for example. A person might be present, but due to the suppression of sin, they don't actually actively listen with eagerness. That's another form of suppression. Another form of suppression comes when we use unjust weights and measures for sin. We write down the values of sin by minimize the perceived impact that they will have in our world. We can write down the value of sin also by imagining if they don't really stack that much up against God. That's the devaluation of sin. That is a form of suppression. And what we're doing in those moments, what we're doing is actually trying to alleviate the pain and the burden of the conscience. But suppression of the conscience is dangerous because what it is is actually a hardening of the heart. It's not where cleansing comes from. Cleansing can only come through the blood of Jesus Christ, which is powerful, and it's an act of faith to believe that it cleanses the heart. You know, if God says that the appointed mechanism of the Old Testament isn't effective, how much more are all other means of attempt? And so I'm very briefly going to just point out two reasons here why the union with Christ through the blood ensures that this burden of sin is just taken away. And it's in the text. But we have to back up just a little bit, back into chapter 9 for a moment, because it's like a train. The writer is like a train, and there's, there's, he's, he's going in a thought flow. And in verse 28, I want you to see where it says, and we read it this morning at the start of our service, so Christ being offered once to bear the sins of many will appear a second time not to deal with sin but to save those who are eagerly awaiting for him. Notice that first phrase. He had been offered once to bear the sins of many. Sins of many. This is a way of speaking about the the substitution of Christ for ourselves. The way sinners are taken, the way these sins, excuse me, are taken away is through the substitutional death and suffering of the Lord Jesus Christ. 
You have to look back even at verse 26, where it says, For then he would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world, but as it is, he appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. What's being described here is a very particular effect of the atonement. The atonement referring to Jesus sacrifices blood flow to create the union. Sometimes we talk in theological terms about a general atonement or a particular atonement. I don't hold fully to all sides of any of that question. But I think sometimes a general atonement view can be a little bit too general at times. And a helpful, a helpful aspect of a particular atonement view here is the decisiveness of redemption. When Christ suffered and died, the sins, do you notice the plural there? The sins of the many, the sins of the many were placed upon him. That's a very particular focus. When you see the word sins, plural, that's talking about every individual sin that a person commits. It's not the generalized sin principle. It's talking about the very individual things that we all do. Notice that the sins, plural, of the many, of the many were placed upon him. So it, all who call upon the name of Christ individually have the guarantee that the blood of Jesus Christ can atone every single sin that you or I have ever committed. That's the intention from the foundation of the world to provide atonement for every single sin, whether it's past, present, or future. It's important for us to see the substitutional nature of Christ in particular determination to atone for us. So important. You remember that there were, on the Day of Atonement, there were goats that were brought to the tabernacle. We've talked about this several times over the last number of months. But in the bringing of those goats, one goat was slaughtered and that blood was sprinkled, right? There was another goat that went off alive. And that goat, the priest would put his hand on there and he would confess the sins of the people. And then that goat would go out into the wilderness and would carry away the sins of the people out into the region of the demons. That was all picture, shadow, anticipating what Christ did. In his suffering, Christ also carried our sins into the regions of hell. He took them away. And so that when we confess our dependence upon the blood of Christ, we can have absolute certainty that the blood of Christ is taking our sins away. And we don't have to fret and fear anymore. That is the greatest conscience reliever that we could ever be given as the burden of our sin is carried away. And so when Christ died, his suffering not only included the cross, but he also took our sins from the God's presence, discarded them into hell forever. That is a blessing. But that's an important aspect of the substitutional nature of Christ's blood. But it also, there is the perfecting nature 
The perfecting nature of Christ's sacrifice. Verse 1, I am jumping around a little bit in these four verses, but I want you to look at verse 1 where it says, For for since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come, instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered, make perfect those who draw near. If those things cannot, then the opposite is implied to be true. Christ's blood can perfect forever those who draw near to God. Positively stated, it's through the union with Christ by the Holy Spirit that we are drawn into a place where we are being perfected forever. It's through the new birth of the Holy Spirit that's infused into our hearts. It's a miraculous work of God. And the infusion of the Holy Spirit actually brings to us real holiness. It starts with our underlying desires. It changes us. You know, we can go about life, doing the same life before we're converted. And when after the Holy Spirit comes into our hearts and lives, everything changes. Our whole perspective changes. It's because the holiness of God has entered into our hearts, giving us new desires to love God above all else. Yeah, we're sinners yet, but we're now on the king's highway. We're we're moving towards uh, the celestial city. You know, we might actually get off the road of walking towards Christ, but there's something within us now that we know how to get back on the road again. We know how to get back on the road again because the Spirit teaches us the way of repentance, teaches us the way of removing of sin and putting on righteousness and then returning to the king's highway. We have a greater sense of the Lord's love for us and forgiveness than we've ever had. Think of the song that we do sing here at the tabernacle. You'll remember these lines. When Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within, upward I look and see him there who made an end of all my sin. Because the sinless Savior died, my sinful soul is counted free. For God the just is satisfied to look on him and pardon me. To look on him and pardon me. See, There is a perfecting work in Christ's blood that's applied to our hearts by the Holy Spirit. That perfecting work. There is the substitutional nature. And all of these are designed to remove the burden of sin that we experience. And number two, here, these things are all designed to bring us into a greater consecration with God. And the second aspect that's highlighted in this text, verses 5 to 10, is that it's in Christ. The pleasure of God is decisively accomplished. See, the remarkable glory of God in salvation is his exclusive role in uniting our hearts with him. It's exclusive. God was pleased to create a means for redeeming us, and it's built on his exclusive work. This is why Christ came into the world. 
Verse 5. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God. Burnt offerings, sin offerings do not permanently atone. Only a perfect human sacrifice could atone for a human. One of the reasons that human sacrifice was prohibited in the Old Testament was because it was providing atonement, if you will, with sinful beings. It was completely off limits. It was actually anticipating the coming of the perfect human being who would give his life up voluntarily, someone who was completely sinless. And in this quote from Psalm 40, the writer is anticipating a human sacrifice that God himself would provide. And this is God's glory, that he provided it. You know, the great joy and redemption is actually remembering and realizing that this is not something that I have done. That's where the joy comes from. If I have to agonize in kind of up the ante and and get myself to be right with God, I am going to be completely undone, completely demoralized. With every step of life, I will fall flat on my face. It's because Christ's suffering was not only by his death, it was also by his perfect life. Christ lived the life that we all could never live. And he did it in a body prepared for him so that it could be sacrificed for us. He was always attentive to the will of the Father. Even as he wrestled with the inevitable in the Garden of Eden, excuse me, the Garden of Gethsemane. It was kind of theologically like a Garden of Eden, but Christ also was victory over that. He said, if it be possible, remove this cup from me. This cup of, of intense wrath. But he said, nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Jesus was that perfect son. That perfect Adam who, who failed in the Garden of Eden. He, he was victorious in the Garden of Gethsemane. And it's because of the obedience of Christ that we have been given freedom. See, in this text, God's pleasure is decisively accomplished through the obedience of Christ. In the last half, in verses 8 through 10, we're seeing how that God's pleasure is decisively accomplished by the gift of the Holy Spirit. Verses 8 through 10, he says, When he had said above, you have neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings and sin offerings. These are offered according to the law. And then he said, Behold, I have come to do your will, and he does away with the first in order to establish the second. To establish the second. These are shorthand phrases that are used to say the removal of the first covenant so that we might have the new covenant. What is the new covenant? What is the new covenant gift? It is the Holy Spirit. All the arguments in the back in the earlier parts of the book of Hebrews about the new covenant 
writing God's laws upon our heart are being uh, kind of talked about right here. It was God's decisive pleasure to accomplish union with us by giving us the gift of the Holy Spirit. See, the Holy Spirit puts a new principle of holiness within us at the time of conversion. Our first cry is, Abba, Father. See, when a person is born again, they put on the robes of Christ's righteousness. Our justification occurs out of the will of God the Father. It was carried out because Jesus Christ was consecrated to him, and he imparts to us the Holy Spirit so that we also might be consecrated to him. The argument here in this text is actually calling us to recognize that the Father wills our consecration by following in the step foot, footsteps of Christ. And to realize that the blood of Christ provides the means so that our consciences are alleviated from the weight of sins, but then we are empowered by the Holy Spirit to enter into union with the Father. This is what drives the the history of the world, if you will. This is, this is what prevents the return of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's the salvation of souls to complete his bride, the church. He wants to bring us into union with himself. I think we have to ask ourselves, what is the will of the Father? And how do I participate in his purposes? What would acts of consecration look like? How do we show that we're devoted to Christ. Obviously, these can't be done in a legalistic manner. They have to come from the heart. But through the balance of this text, we're actually, we're getting through the main doctrinal sections. And now what's going to show up in the last part of Hebrews is the application of what it looks like to live a consecrated and devoted life to God. Some of the things that we're going to come across some of the things that would, would lend themselves to demonstrating a devoted life to God would be, for example, participation in the assembly. It's coming up in this chapter. Participation in the assembly, regularly making yourself present for the worship of Christ and with his people. That would demonstrate consecration to the Father. I'm just going to read some other texts that complement this theme. We're going to see them in the book of Hebrews, but it's throughout the scriptures. In Revelation 21.3, anticipating the good things to come, in Revelation 21.3, it says, Look, God's dwelling is with humanity, and he will live with them, and they will be his peoples, and God himself will be with them and will be their God. If we're looking forward to that with a heart of consecration, where does God meet with his people now? He meets with God's people now here with the assembly. And so if we are consecrating ourselves to Christ through the Spirit for the Father, we're going to, we're going to make ourselves present for the fellowship with the Father through the Son because of the Holy Spirit on a Sunday. We're also going to be concerned about the preservation of the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. We're not going to try to foment division within a body if we love the body. 
If we are consecrated to the body, we're going to do whatever we can to, to minimize things that create anxiety. Ephesians 4, verses 2 through 3, bear with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. That word eager to maintain, it's like eagerly waiting, anticipating the Lord's return. It's that same kind of devotion, a desire to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Three, perseverance. Another way of an act of consecration is perseverance in the face of suffering. Second Timothy 3.12 says, Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. If you are devoted, consecrated to Christ, you will face persecution. And Nick in his prayer pre-anticipated the reality is that we will, as Christians, face persecution in coming days. If the Lord tarries, we will not necessarily enjoy the freedoms that we have cherished for nearly 200 years. We have to realize that if we are going to be consecrated to Christ, we must expect that we will face persecution. Number four, we have to put away competing loves and affections. If we're going to be consecrated, devoted to Christ, we have to remember what Christ said in the Sermon on the Mount when he said, no one can serve two masters. For he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Our society is built on money. I don't think you can get out of any culture unscathed by the love of money. The reality is, we have to ask ourselves, are we demonstrating a a consecrated heart to the Lord? And our checkbooks will show it. You see, the Father wills our consecration. He wills our consecration to Him through union with the Son by the Holy Spirit. If we say with our mouth that we are professing believers, followers of Christ, but it's not drawing us into a closer relationship with the Father, our confession is void. We have to take seriously the world that we're living in and recognize the blood of Jesus Christ is what alleviates burdens. It is what draws us into desired relationship with the Father. I'm going to close with a gospel focus. In James chapter 4, verses 5 through 8, I'm just going to read these verses. And notice the desired consecration that God has for us. James writes and he says, Or do you suppose it is no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealousy over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us? You hear that? God wants our consecration. He wants us to live devotedly to him. He's jealous for it. But he gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. 
Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. This is the gospel truth that if we humble ourselves and by faith claim the blood of Jesus Christ, we too will find that we have been drawn into closer relationship with him. Let us pray.